and welcome to the Terrorism 360 podcast. My name is Gary LaFree, and this podcast is being brought to you by the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, the START Center, from the campus of the University of Maryland. If you'd like to know more about the START Center and its programs, I encourage you to visit our website at start.umd.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at start underscore UMD. Jonathan Wilkenfeld is professor and former chair of government and politics at the University of Maryland. He's a specialist in foreign policy decision-making, crisis behavior, and mediation, as well as the use of simulation in political science. Since 1977, John has served as the co-director of the International Crisis Behavior Project, a cross-national study of international crises. The project has served as the basis for systematic research into a range of crucial foreign policy issues including state motivations during times of crisis, conflict management practices, and protracted conflict trajectories. John is also the founding director of the ICONS Project, which provides decision-makers with interactive training experiences in the fields of conflict behavior, negotiation, and crisis management. John's current work focuses on mediation processes in interstate conflicts and crises. And I'm also pleased to report that John was a founding member of the START Center and that John and I have been friends and colleagues for many years. So we want to welcome uh, welcome you, John, to the Terrorism 360 podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. And uh, with all of our uh, participants thus far, we've sort of launched with a very general question about how you got involved in the field. And um I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit about how you originally got interested in the study of terrorism and political violence. Sure. Well, first and foremost, I became a political scientist. And within that broad field, I was particularly interested in international relations in general. But most specifically, I was interested in why nations resort to war as a means for achieving national goals. Over the course of my career, it became apparent that it was not only conflict between nations that deserved our attention, but also conflict within nations. That is, conflict that, conflicts that were tearing societies apart from the inside. It was not much of a stretch to begin focusing on terrorism, both internally and increasingly international. One of the defining phenomena of our current age is the spread of international terrorism so that groups are willing to export their fights to the larger international community. As a political scientist and an IR scholar, this was an area where I felt that my particular training and skills as a social scientist could help us better understand the motivations behind the appeal of terrorist organizations. So I know when I've given lectures sometimes on terrorism, I have a part of the opening that says that it seemed odd that until 9-11 that the social behavioral sciences neglected the study of terrorism. And uh, I guess I've usually include political science in there, but what's your take on that? Do you think, did political science, is it fair to say political science also has been sort of slow to get into the study of terrorism? Well, I think it's a matter of definition. So um, there was always political violence of various sorts, when it spilled over from one domain that is maybe within a state to become externalized in some way in the international system, it, it was at that point that terrorism began to get to be part of the overall study of, 
of conflict and particularly international conflict. Um, one of the one of the ways that I think about terrorism as a as a political scientist is to I know there are a lot of different definitions of terrorism, and one that that in particular I uh, I find or the parts of one particular definition that I find most interesting is the notion that um, that uh, there's an emphasis on a form of violence which is meant to strike fear, or really terror, in the hearts of civilian population. Uh, and that using that as a way of moving populations and governments towards the position that a particular group wants to adopt. So um, it is really the, uh, the um, you might say, that portion of terrorism that is directed specifically against civilians and that is, um, uh, as I said, intended to strike fear and to, um, and to really um, incapacitate uh, governments and citizens in certain ways from following their normal, their normal patterns of behavior. So you're actually already were anticipating where I was heading next, which was to talk a little bit about how you would define terrorism as a political scientist. And so it sounds like at least part of that definition is going to include uh, uh, violence that's directed against civilians. So with that definition, would you, how would you feel about, uh, for example, attacks on the military? Would, would you include those as terrorism? Yeah, so that's that's been an important point, and there are a number of definitions that include as well as definitions that exclude. Uh, the the uh, my sense is that uh, attacks against the military are part of the job of the military to prevent to protect against. Now, granted, terrorist terrorist um, the means in which which terrorism terrorists have adopted often are outside normal warfare. So, for example, the, the rules of war, which are, are there to, if you use a sort of a misnomer, to protect military against um, the use of certain types of weapons, for example, chemical weapons or biological weapons, um, uh, are part of the rules, sometimes written and sometimes unwritten rules of war. Terrorism, by definition, is often outside, using means that are outside the normal, the normal, um, uh, war, the, the normal means by which war is is conducted. So, uh, so in that sense, attacks against military can be considered part of the overall terrorism framework. However, um, if the military is absorbing those terrorist hits, it's not the same as if the civilian population is under attack. That's a step level beyond the normal protection which a military is, is intended to provide its population. So that's why I've, in, at least in, in the way I view things, there is this differentiation between um, attacks against military targets and attacks against civilian targets. Granted, the military are civilians when they go back home. Uh, if you picture the, um, for example, the Israeli army, where um, a very small country. Everybody um, is everybody is in a sense part of the family, and so an attack on even a terrorist attack on a military facility can become terrorizing to the population in general because it occurs close to home, involves people that you know, relatives, and so forth. 
So it's a it's a it's a complex, and and I'm not even sure that it's worth, you know, making a distinction between those two in in a in a broad sense. If it is a terrorizing event, it doesn't matter really where it happened in mm-hmm. the overall spread of things. Yes, and we of course uh, encounter that complexity in trying to figure out what to include in the global terrorism database all the time. So uh, we've had, uh, on the podcast, we've had people from a lot of different uh, academic specialties, you know, psychology and sociology and criminology and law. And I, I wonder, do you think, as a political scientist, are there some unique things that you bring to the study of terrorism based on their political science background, would you say? Well, political scientists study uh, the way societies um, organize themselves to, to make political decisions or make, make decisions in general. And in my particular case, uh, how nations um, make decisions in terms of the way they interact with other nations in the international system. Um, so in that sense, uh, terrorism, certainly when it's used as an arm of a nation state, becomes part of the purview of what we would, would ordinarily study. Mm-hmm. Uh, under other circumstances, where, where terrorism is, in fact, occurring within a state uh, and not spreading to the international system, that may be more the purview of a criminologist or a sociologist, but certainly political psychologist, political sociology is. So I don't actually, my own view is that we spend too much time differentiating among the various social scientists, sciences, and that all of us working together with each other so, for example, um, I've worked closely with Michelle Gelfand over the years. Michelle is a uh, is a is a renowned psychologist here at here at Maryland, and in our work together, for example, in our work on uh, mediation of of conflicts, uh, we each bring a different perspective to to the table. I know that Ari Kuglansky is another member of the Start. Start team, another psychologist, um, brings his own perspective on how how a, a psychologist would view um, motivation to become a terrorist, uh, how terrorist ter- people with uh, grievances against their society aggregate in some way to form groups that become can become terrorist groups under the the right circumstances. So. Whether you're a psychologist or a sociologist or a political scientist or a criminologist, for that matter, have I left any social sciences out? <laughs> you covered the, the whole. Yeah, never quite sure about <laughs> the, the um, that all of those all of those um, um, disciplines really contribute to the whole, and that's one of the remarkable things about the Start Center is that right from the very beginning, it brought together all of these disciplines, as well as some that are outside of social science, like computer science and, and others that, that have uh, allowed us as a, as a center to really make a, con- a unique contribution to the study of, study of terrorism. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, the importance of that interdisciplinary focus. Um, so uh, for quite a number of years, from around 2008 to 2012 at least, um, you were responsible for publishing an edited volume called Peace and Conflict, uh, which is a publication that's provided data and analysis, especially on international conflicts. I wonder if you could sort of think back to that 
period, and I know you're still involved with the group to some large extent, but and sort of take a broad view, a big picture view, and, and talk to our listeners about what you see as some of the best predictors that a country is about to devolve into serious uh, conflict. Yes. So uh, we know that there is a strong relationship between instability, sometimes referred to as fragility or state failure or vulnerability to failure, and the probability that a state will either engage in conflict itself or that it will uh, serve as a breeding ground for external conflict and terrorism. Uh, the research group that I've been affiliated with, um, the Center for International Development and Conflict Management, CIDCM, has produced what, what we've called a peace and conflict instability ledger that's been used pretty widely by various U.S. government agencies, including State Department and USAID, and others to provide early warning for instability events. Um, and uh, early in that research, we, uh, of course, there are multiple indicators of instability. Um, we uh, zeroed in ultimately on, a, um, on an index which includes uh, five key indicators of potential for instability within a society. Uh, the first is uh, institutional consistency. A state which has um, has uh, consistent and well uh, functioning uh, institutions is likely to be one that that is stable in the international system. Uh, secondly, economic openness: the extent to which the state is um, involved in the global international system uh, through trade, through exchange of ideas, through memberships in um, in international in international and regional organizations contribute to its uh, stability internally. The third indicator is an interesting one. It's uh, infant mortality rates. Um, we often try to understand uh, how to measure the extent to which a government is providing um, a social welfare policy to its, to its citizens. Often these, are, uh, these measures um, don't fluctuate easily over time, um, don't fluctuate often over time. But uh, something like infant mortality rate, you can actually measure a, a decline in, in government services, such as prenatal uh, health care and so forth, can lead to a decline, to, to an increase in infant mortality in the very next year. So that was chosen as an indicator of whether or not the, uh, the government is capable of providing these uh, social welfare uh, uh, goods to its to its citizens, um, a fourth indicator is the degree to which the society is militarized. Um, and so, if if the society has a large standing army, many of its citizens have served uh, in the military, even though they may be civilians now. They are more uh, inclined to uh, be um, recruited into uh, violent organizations if, these, if the characteristics of, this, of the society uh, war, uh, uh, point in that direction. And finally, um, a measure of what we call neighborhood stability, that is, neighborhood security, excuse me, that is a, um, a measure of whether or not uh, there is political instability in a state that is neighboring 
your country. Often there's spillover, whether it be, for example, ethnic groups which are divided between uh, two across two borders. Um, so the degree to which the state is in a peaceful neighborhood, call it a neighborhood, as opposed to a um, more unstable and potentially violent neighborhood, all contribute to whether or not uh, there will be uh, stability within the society. Now, we have to keep in mind that um, these, are, these are preconditions for instability and violence. They are not, they need to be coupled with what we tend to call precipitating events. So, for example, a uh, severe drought in a particular region may be the, uh, may be the, uh, the tipping point that carries the society from one level of, uh, from, from a relatively stable state to an unstable state, given that all of these other factors that I mentioned earlier are still sort of in place. So whether it's um, uh, a drought or a, um, uh, some sort of physical event, other physical event like uh, an earthquake or so forth that, that disrupts the, um, the normal flow of events, that can precipitate uh, violence given the fact that these other preconditions exist within a society. So uh, that was sort of a long-winded uh, response, but uh, those are the those are the indicators that we've that we've tended to use to uh, to try to to understand when a society is most most vulnerable. I'll tell you in a, as an aside um, uh, when. When we and others, other groups, so for example, the Political Instability Task Force, which is a U.S. government uh, task force, began uh, doing this kind of work. Actually, much of it was under the auspices of the office of uh, Vice President Gore at the time. Um, I remember being in a conversation with some of the leaders of these groups. Um, Ted Gurr and Mansur Olson and I were standing at some uh, university event and um, uh, they had just gotten word that Time, I think it was Time Magazine, was about to do a story on their, most, on their, um, on their findings. And their findings, of course, included a list of the top five or top ten countries that were going to, that according to their indicators, were, going, were, lot, were most probable, most likely to experience violence in the coming decade. And the government, frankly, was concerned that publicizing that kind of thing would sort of be a signal to those governments, but particularly to groups within those societies that, that in fact, people were noticing that there were problems that could, that could flow into violence and, and uh, external conflict. And so they actually asked that uh, that group not publish those, uh, those findings um, widely. They're still they're in the realm of sensitive but unclassified these days because they can have this kind of uh, demonstration effect to the societies that they're they're addressing. So it's a double-edged sword in a sense. And in fact, uh, we had hoped to have Ted Gurr on the podcast, but unfortunately he passed away before we were able to schedule him. So just to give our readers some sense of how effective these five indicators, can you give us a sort of a rough metric of if you've got these five variables, how accurate can you be in terms of predicting 
talk well, about? Well, so uh, that very first time we ran this, Brazil was in the top five. As a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons that the U.S. government asked us not not to publish this widely, hmm. or not not at least not to disseminate it widely. They didn't want to send a signal to Brazil that maybe there was something going on there. Um, now, Brazil has not had an upheaval in the past, well, has not had one in, in recent memory, although there are many, uh, there, the, um, the most recent election in Brazil, which was just yesterday, uh, in which a, a far-right sort of populist candidate uh, won 47% of the vote and probably will win in a, possibly will win in a runoff election. Um, is an indicator that there's something not that that the population is not happy with the way the government is performing. So whether it's vulnerable for to a, this would be a very large coup, obviously, because Brazil is one of the leading uh, leading members of the club of uh, of rapidly developing countries. Right. So it is a country to watch. I, mm -hmm. I would not. I, I don't want to to our Brazilian colleagues. I don't want to send the wrong signal, but. But we didn't exactly get it wrong. We just may have not gotten the time frame right when we were doing this work ten or fifteen years ago. Wow. So that's an example. But other countries, other countries, are among the the uh, you know the usual suspects. Uh, whether it's Burundi or Central African Republic or Afghanistan, Pakistan, they're all in the top. They're all in the top ten. Well, I don't like to think of it as very well because it's not good for the entire right. system. <laughs> not good for the, for the outcome of the people living there, that's for sure. So I wonder if we could uh, broaden this even further and, and think for just a minute about uh, at least U.S. government policies and um, what the U.S. has been doing in reacting to terrorism over the last decade or so and, and talk a little bit about whether you think it's been effective the policies used by the U.S. government to combat terrorism and political violence. Yeah, so as as the uh, GTD and other data sets uh, on terrorism show, there's been something of a recent decline worldwide in fatalities um, inflicted by terrorist groups. Is this attributable to actions undertaken by the U.S. and other governments, or... Um, or are there other forces at play? I want to I want to introduce a couple of concepts here in order to um, to explain what I mean a little bit further. Um, so, in international relations and in other fields, we talk about adaptation versus mitigation. Uh, so, in this particular sense, we've adapted. Uh, we've spent you know, a fortune on border security, on airport security in particular, and other ways in which we can lock out or try to lock out terrorism from our borders. Um, so that's that's an example of adapting to a, to a problem that, that we recognize, and we hope that by, by adopting these various techniques, we'll be able to address it. Mitigation, on the other hand, is another is another story, because in order to do that successfully, we really have to address the sources of terrorism and not so much uh, how, it, how to deal with it once it's trying to flow across your border. So here it's not so clear that we've been as successful as we have been with uh, mitigation. Um, and so uh, 
The Trump administration, for example, has focused much of its efforts on stemming what it calls illegal immigration, including the attempted expulsion of many who have managed to come into the country uh, illegally. In my view, the U.S. does not have a coherent strategy on mitigation. Neither does any other government. I'm not, I'm not arguing that the U.S. is out of step, but simply that uh, the first the first response has been to try to protect your own. The second response has to be, and it's a much broader and a much more time-consuming response and a difficult response, is getting at those factors which are likely to lead to uh, the, the um, occurrence and the spread of terrorism, uh, both within countries and beyond, beyond their borders. And that's an area where we need to pay, uh, need to pay more attention. So I was going to follow that up, and maybe this, I guess, the Trump administration has not been around for that long, but you mentioned uh, their immigration policy. Are there other areas uh, in the Trump administration's policies, you think, that have been either ineffective or effective when it comes to terrorism? Well, you know, as you've said, they haven't been around long enough to make enough of a, to have enough of an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to, you know, go out on a limb and sort of be too critical of the current current administration, I think that there are people in that administration who are trying very hard to come up with a strategy, and uh, whether it's uh, whether it's dealing with um, Syria, which is a uh, which is an, an important um, uh, it w- it's a conflict which is generating uh, uh, generating terrorism and exporting it in various areas. Uh, or Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, all of these are different, difficult areas to deal with. So I, I don't, I'm not a, I, I don't have a prescription. What I have, rather, is a sense that unless we um, provide, help those societies provide the means by which their citizens can uh, free themselves of grievances against the state, that they will forever be confronting us with individuals and groups who are bent on destroying what they see, whether correctly or erroneously, as the uh, role of the West in uh, creating the the conditions within their countries that make them dissatisfied. And that response kind of leads us into where I was heading next, which is some of the work you've done on mediation. You've done uh, some work where you find, for example, that uh, certain types of international mediation are more likely to be successful than other types. And in particular, you've got this distinction between manipulative mediation uh, versus restrictive facilitative mediation. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about those two different forums and which one is more successful and why? Sure. We've actually um, found three Three different types of mediation, not just we, but but uh, scholars in general in this field. There's a, a type of mediation that's called uh, facilitation, that brings together, um, bring in a sense, brings creates the environment that that the two sides or multiple sides of a particular conflict come together and discuss their their mutual grievances. So whether it's uh, providing a physical location or providing a, uh, a table and a seating arrangement or whatever it is, or just being in the room to make sure that they don't go after each other in a, um, 
in a and I'm using room is a you know a metaphor for uh, for the negotiation that goes on in general, so that they don't get at, at each other in a uh, in a destructive way. So facilitating uh, is is the first category. Formulation uh, is where the mediators actually help provide the um, the um, framework for an agreement. So you might think of the um, Camp David Accords where Carter first brought them together at uh, Camp David and many felt that, that I think it's actually been <clears throat> written about that Carter felt that um, all he had to do was get them into one location, introduce them to each other, make sure that they were uh, getting meals properly and going out for, for uh, walks in the woods and so forth, but that he and his administration would take a step back at that point. Uh, but very quickly, um, really after the first day where they really clashed with each other, Begin and Sadat did not meet face to face for the next like 12 days. Uh, and the Carter, Carter and his staff really were in the position of having to evolve from facilitating the negotiation to actually formulating texts of agreements and carrying them back and forth until ultimately a final text was agreed upon and then the two sides shook hands pretty unhappily at that at that point. So that was the movement from facilitation to formulation. And then the third level, as you mentioned, is uh, manipulation, which is where the uh, mediator does all of those other things, does facilitation and does formulation, but also uh, has the ability to manipulate the parties into agreement. And that is usually through uh, either threats or, um, or promises or carrots, sticks and carrots. Um, so um, again, uh, to, to go back to a, to a Middle East uh, example, when Kissinger was involved in negotiating the ceasefire between uh, Egypt and Israel after the 73 war, one of the um, one of the inducements was the provision of uh, pretty extensive uh, U.S. aid, particularly military aid, to uh, both the countries, but particularly Israel, so it could feel that it had some security in case the agreement didn't, the ceasefire didn't hold. Uh, it also uh, had the U.S. stationing uh, uh, observers in Sinai to to make sure that there was no violation of the uh, truce in a sense, to be a tripwire. So, so manipulation is, is, a, is, is the most forceful form of mediation. And often, so what we find among the many, many findings that are of some relevance here, manipulative, manipulative mediation leads more often to agreements than any of the other types. So if you want an agreement, push the parties around, uh, promise them stuff, and bring them bring them together, but it is not necessarily um, going to lead to a reduction in tensions. In fact, uh, it doesn't. So you don't move from crisis management to conflict resolution very easily by pushing the parties into uh, into agreeing to something that maybe they were not inclined to agree to. So uh, it's there that formulation and facilitation actually play a larger role in reaching uh, effective agreements in the international community. Now, just, just to conclude this, I, the, what I've talked about so far 
Uh, the three types of mediation actually hold both for interstate as well as intrastate conflicts. But one of the interesting things that we find in conflicts within with mediation that is that is um, being used within uh, within societies to try to bring warring parties, let's say in civil wars, to uh, to uh, conclude their uh, their conflicts, is that um, manipulation is not as effective in those kinds of conflicts. And actually, the agreements the more the agreements that are reached are more likely to be reached through facilitation and formulation. Furthermore, we find that the inclusion of domestic mediators in an overall mediation group is likely to be the most effective. And within that, uh, the role of women, for example, in mediation has been found to be particularly uh, effective. These are not women and generally domestic groups, maybe civil society groups and so forth, are not likely to be able to manipulate because they don't have any, any sort of power to do that. But in, in combination with other groups, so for example, the UN or a regional organization, in the case of Africa, the uh, African Union, um, are when they incorporate both domestic as well, and in particular women into this process, they're likely to be more, more effective. The UN has actually recognized this, this preliminary finding uh, we can note that only 2% of um, UN-trained mediators are, in fact, women. And so there's now a push to train more women mediators, both for an international conflict as well as internal conflict. Uh, the uh, Scandinavian countries, for example, have a big um, initiative going specifically to develop training programs for uh, for. Uh, uh, women in, in mediation to contribute to this process. So that's an example of how uh, some, of the, some of the social science research on this area has begun to have an impact on international policy, both at the, um, at the uh, UN level as well as uh, at the country level. It sounds like a very direct impact, in fact. And uh, I know in, in looking over the peace and conflict uh, Volumes. One of the things I found interesting from your work is the idea that a lot of conflicts, and I think an increasing number of conflicts, are actually coming from areas that the world thought were taken care of, and the world sort of has lost interest in the area, moved on to other areas, and then these have flared up again. Is that? A, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the key findings. Um, so let me let me say first that that the international system is sort of stabilized in that there's somewhere between 25 and this doesn't sound great 25 and 30 ongoing conflicts over the course of any particular year. Um, we have not done a very good job in recent years of um, settling conflicts for good. And so there aren't a lot of new conflicts occurring. Rather, we have a phenomenon of recurrence of conflict. And this goes back to uh, some of the things that I've talked about already with regard to mediation and conflict resolution, that we know how to stop them. We know how to get ceasefires, but we're not so good at getting um, peace agreements that actually 
that actually hold. Uh, and often it's the case that we um, we abandon a particular, uh, particularly an internal conflict, that we go in, we put in peacekeepers, we mediate a particular, um, we, we reach a particular agreement, and then we, and I say we, the international community, regional organizations, international organizations, uh, U.S., uh, not U.S., but aid aid agencies, international aid agencies, whether they're governmental or non-governmental, uh, once they see that it's sort of settled, they move on to another area, and lo and behold, two or three years later, or not even that long, uh, you have a recurrence uh, because the basic issues have not really been settled. So, for example, if you take um, uh, Kenya, for example, had a had an election in 2008. There was a good deal of violence. Um, it was a surprise to the international community because that had been Kenya had been sort of one of the bastions of uh, of um, what what was emerging as a as a as the movement towards democracy within Africa, and then it all broke down in that in that election. So. One of the uh, one of the lessons that we've learned from this uh, from this process is that um, we need to stick with it, and um, that's that's often difficult for the international community. But other than but unless you do that, you're going to have conflict recurrence. You know? uh, I would guess perhaps even diff more difficult for individual countries to stick with. Uh, yeah, I mean you know this from a, from another perspective. You know that. Um, um, it's all, when you create a data set, for example, it's often difficult for, to get the funding to go back and fix things that you know there's non, new, new information on old conflicts, which you'd like to add, or terrorist events that, that were missed the first time around. Nobody's really interested. I mean, I, 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 I'm been director of the International Crisis Behavior data set for many years, and I know that uh, getting, getting a government agency to help us fix Data going back to the 1920s or so is not not very easy. So the same the same thing holds true with true, governments. Yeah. Certain certain conflicts are mm -hmm. are in the public eye. That's where you want to be when there seems to be a lull in the action. Um, almost immediately, resources are withdrawn. Peacekeepers are withdrawn. Uh, aid agencies uh, mm -hmm. move move on. So you know, in a in a world of limited resources, that presumably is an understandable phenomenon, but it but it nevertheless is not good for a conflict resolution. So uh, I wanted to uh, pivot uh, to something I brought up in, in the brief introduction uh, a minute ago about your role as the founding director of ICONS. Um, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the ICONS project, how it got started, and, uh, and what is sort of involved in ICONS. So first, what does it stand for? That's a good start. Uh, nobody remembers any works at me. Ah, so, oh, you're asking me. <laughs> uh, the, so it stands for International Communications and Negotiation Simulations. And uh, almost immediately everybody forgot what it stood for, and uh, it's just been icons ever since. Uh, it began rather modestly a little over 30 years ago as, uh, as a way to link together uh, dispersed college classrooms to study various aspects of foreign policy decision-making, among them conflict and, and crisis and uh, terrorism and war. What made it unique in its early years was, um, uh, was its use of the precursors to what today we know as the Internet. 
so uh, used a, a number of, um, of early uh, versions of the internet, ARPANET and NSFNet and others, to link uh, classrooms uh, really around the world. Um, ICON simulations over this period have reached uh, more than 50,000 college students. Uh, and it's involved more than 100 college professors in the United States and about 50, uh, 50 countries. We also involve foreign language usage, uh, which is uh, another aspect of our programs. So over the years, ICONS grew from its early days uh, with a, its exclusive focus on college students and international relations and foreign policy issues to developing simulations for, at the high school level as well. Um, so while all that was going on, two additional tracks were developed by the ICON staff. Um, training became an important part of the ICON's mission. So for example, ICON's now works closely with the World Bank in developing and delivering training programs uh, designed to sensitize members of its various operational divisions to the work of its integrity of vice presidency. So this is a effort to get the uh, World Bank people who are actually in the field supervising, developing and supervising um, various uh, development projects to be aware of the kinds of things that the, uh, the other branch of the World Bank is likely to look at, which is corruption and uh, graft and payoff. So often, I don't want to say this too forcefully, but often a, um, a development officer is willing to sort of overlook some of the things going on within a society in order to get the project done. Whereas the other branch of the um, of the bank may be very interested in making sure that that we're not uh, you know enriching corrupt corrupt leaders. It's a very difficult balance. So what we did was we brought together um, people from operations and people from what they call the integrity vice presidency, which is the investigative arm, had them switch roles uh, and then play out a scenario which created one of these problems so that the integrity people would sort of understand the kinds of pressures that the operational people were under and vice versa. That's an example of what you can do in a simulation environment, not necessarily a conflict environment, but one in which uh, you want to uh, sensitize each side to the work of the other and the, and the pressures. We've also um, worked with various U.S. government agencies, in particular the Department of Defense, uh, in providing crisis decision-making uh, training to several of the, uh, the commands. Uh, so we've worked with PACOM and UCOM, CENTCOM and SOCOM and others. ICONS has also worked with uh, the uh, U.S. and Chinese governments um, over the past 10 years to help them better understand each other's crisis management uh, procedures to help them develop better crisis management mechanisms. Uh, these are going to be two, at least two of the major players in the international system for the foreseeable future. And to the extent that we can do a better job of helping them understand how each of the two governments go about making crisis decisions and what kinds of, um, what kinds of mechanisms they can develop to deal with crises, uh, those are going to be important in making sure that uh, crises don't um, don't escalate beyond where we can hope to manage them. Uh, ICONS has also worked closely with a number of corporate uh, entities, to uh, particularly multinational corporations, uh, 
such as uh, Shell Oil and AB InBev and Hong Kong Airport Authority and others, uh, to train their upper management in crisis preparation and recovery. Um, so that, that's been the evolution of the ICONS project over the years. So I know that, uh, that you have at least one um, ICON simulation on a terrorist case. I don't know if you're very familiar with that case, but I'm curious uh, how did that one go? Did, did that it it seems to be, it's, it was, it's been developed in the last couple of years and mm -hmm. it seems to be going uh, you know, quite well. I think that, uh, well, I don't know whether well is, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it has trained a number of uh, students as well as faculty and uh, policy people in how to uh, deal with a, with a terrorist, how to try to cope with a terrorist attack. Uh, we've also um, worked with uh, with um, police departments and other government uh, government officials. Um, so uh, let me. So, for example, uh, we work in various disaster recovery work with various disaster recovery agencies, both in the U.S. and abroad to develop training simulations for their leadership and staff. Uh, for example, um, we've been involved in a contract that St the START Center has with the U.S. State Department to develop a training program for delivery in several Balkan uh, countries uh, where they're attempting to co cope with or, um, the coordination of border issues that um, uh, have, have Come, come up as a result of cross-border smuggling, arms transfer, drug and sex trafficking, trafficking and illegal immigration. So you have a relatively small region with a number of different police forces and how they coordinate uh, uh, these cross-border um, uh, phenomena. We're also working with, again, with a U.S. State Department uh, project uh, focusing on uh, the training of the police force in uh, Benin. Which is a new project uh, again under State Department uh, auspices, um, and recently ICONS has delivered a terrorism-based simulation uh, training program to the National Counterterrorism Center uh, that focuses on the spread of terror of the terrorism threat in the Middle East and North Africa, extending out into the future. So not today's threat or next year's threat, but more like those those threats which are likely to come down the road. Five, ten, even twenty years, twenty years out. And when you did this uh, simulation for the National Counterterrorism Center, did they actually use real people to play the parts? That... They will. So oh, they will. our our contract rent got up to the to the shoreline. We've mm -hmm. delivered we've delivered the product to them. Um, they their intent is to use it in a in a classified environment, so we won't have any access to how it was used or what the results are unless they declassify some of it. But Fascinating to know how taken, that turns they've out. They've taken the project, um, moved it into their realm. And mm. So you mentioned that uh, you know this ICONS project goes back 30 years before really the internet as we know it today. So obviously technology has continued to change a great deal over this period of time. So where do you see these simulations going in the future? What, what do you think ICONS is going to look like, say, 10, 20 years from now? Well, let me first mention if some of the... Um, in addition to this sort of simulation environment, which, which allows us to do what we call distributed simulations, that is where the participants are located in 
largely dispersed areas, whether it's 20 classrooms from all over the world or decision makers within a particular agency dispersed over a geographic area. So that was really the defining sort of characteristic of the ICON's uh, um, methodology. But, but we're, also, um, we're also adding some new components to keep up with both the evolving technology as well as the evolving sort of state of affairs of international negotiations over, over the years. So we can call these uh, sort of new supporting features, as it were. So we're using interactive maps, for example, so that in a uh, Defense Department-oriented uh, simulation, uh, you may have troop movements. You may have certain certain types of weapons being being mobilized and brought into a, a theater of war, and so, uh, or you may have, um, let's say, um, South China Sea, where where you have outcrops that have now become runways, and you have uh, the U.S. Uh, engaged in what are called freedom of navigate navigation ops. And uh, you have Chinese uh, Coast Guard as well as regular naval ships, and they may or may not um, um, accidentally um, get close to each other, even collide with each other. So it's important that the participants who are monitoring this kind of scenario and this kind of crisis can see maps as to where objects are at any particular point in time. We've also... Um, uh, Incorporated uh, social media into our uh, into our simulations. So we all know that it's not just um, uh, the you know picking up a phone and talking to the leader of another country. You are the leadership is also bombarded with with social media messages. Some of them correct, some of them incorrect. All of these have to be taken into account as decisions are made. So. Um, uh, We've also built in a um, what we call an on-the-fly on the network analysis. So we can look at the communications patterns that take place in a, within an organization, whether it's a nation or a uh, corporation or a police department, who is supposed to be talking to each other as opposed to who is actually talking to others during a crisis. And you can identify, therefore, weak points in a um, in an organizational crisis management plan, which may look great on paper, but when you, let's say, remove one of the communications links because it goes down either, either because it's been attacked or for whatever reason, how does that impact the organization? So we've developed a methodology which allows those monitoring these simulations to see these changes in communications patterns on the fly and in some cases, be able to address them while the crisis is still being uh, uh, still ongoing. We also have uh, incorporated conferencing features so that, in addition to text communication, we can have either um, online conferences um, similar to chat rooms or other kinds of other kinds of communication. As I mentioned earlier, we also have the capability of doing this in multiple languages with translators, so that. So all those are things that we've sort of added along uh, along the way, both to take advantage of uh, technology and to make sure that the technologies that participants are used to seeing in a normal uh, in their normal 
jobs are actually apparent during the simulation itself. Um, so I wanted to, uh, <clears throat> you know, you've been, uh, you know, studying these issues now for, for many years and certainly uh, from before 9-11. And you probably know um, a little bit about our colleague, John Mueller, uh, who was actually on the podcast a while ago. And uh, as you know, John has made this argument that, you know, look, the United States has spent over a trillion dollars on conservatively on domestic counterterrorism since 2001. And yet there's surveys done pretty recently. Pew just did one not too long ago that shows Americans are more nervous about terrorism than ever before. So Mueller argues that much of the huge counterterrorism apparatus has just not been worth it. <clears throat> he refers to chasing ghosts in one of his recent books. And I just wonder, what do you think about this critique? Have we spent too much money on counterterrorism, do you think, in the past 20 years? Or do you think it's been a, a sort of successful operation? Yeah, so um, I think there's much to John Mueller's argument. Um, much of the huge expenditure has been in the areas, that, as, I said, as I said earlier, the area of adaptation versus the area of mitigation. Uh, preventing terrorists from reaching and crossing our borders rather than attempting to address the root causes of terrorism. Um, you could think a little bit about um, the analogy to climate change, where... Um, we can adapt. So Venice, for example, is building a gigantic seawall that they'll be able to raise and lower. I mean, it, it sounds preposterous, but but in the event of um, either dramatic uh, sea level rise, they'll be able to save the, um, the sort of arch, uh, architectural treasures that are part of part of Venice's uh, claim to fame. Beach communities in the United States are building large uh, dunes to uh, to keep out uh, the, uh, the the large waves that are uh, that are uh, impacting their shoreline both from uh, rising sea levels as well as from uh, these mega storms uh, that are that are occurring with greater frequency but not enough is being spent in the area of climate change on mitigating those factors uh, those factors that lead to climate change in the first place um, I think the uh, just today the UN um, um, international body on climate change is issuing yet another dire warning that uh, we are likely to exceed that 1.5 centigrade uh, increase in uh, in temperature by the end of the uh, by the end of the century. So, so coming back to terrorism. It seems like our approach is is much the same. You can't ignore the you you can't not address the uh, the 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 imminent threats, but uh, and that's where that's where the large amount of our our expenditures are going. But you must at the same time um, address the uh, the root try to address the root causes. Try to find out what they are. Uh, and then uh, pour money at the same rate uh, to try to address them as well. It's a difficult problem. There are issues of sovereignty. There are issues of alliances. But nevertheless, it's one that we need to uh, pay more attention to. And we're now sort of getting into a, a kind of big picture, broad uh, look at, at terrorism and, uh, and some of the other problems associated with it. And 
It reminds me of a video presentation you did for the START Center a few years ago where you discussed the key challenges facing humanity in the 21st century, so a very broad perspective. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what you see these challenges as being for our listeners and perhaps also say something about how these challenges are related to terrorism and responses to terrorism by governments? Yeah, well, that's a big question. It is indeed. Uh, I think I wrote a whole book on that, uh -huh. but I'll try to try to summarize a little bit and then answer your question about how it how they relate to uh, to terrorism. So, one of the things I said in that book was that key long term challenges to human security remain stubbornly in place, uh, despite a lot of efforts uh, to address them. These uh, these challenges, and I'll just sort of summarize the argument briefly. Uh, they are in five specific areas, government instability, uh, in, ineffective conflict management, uh, uncoordinated development strategies, and unaddressed human impact on climate. I think I left one out, but I'll, I'll come back to it in a second. Mm -hmm. So um, these, are, these are areas where uh, it is likely that not addressing these challenges uh, is is likely to lead to um, to uh, adverse adverse re results. The the argument that I, I've made is that in all of these areas, um, the, the the solutions must be global. I call them collective. So these are all areas where um, where where the international community has as organized into nation states, even with our um, sometimes effective international organizations, we've not been able to address them in a, in a, um, in a, in a in effective way. And so uh, we're left with, um, we're left really with, with a, uh, with a system which, which has, which, which is typified by persistent and recurring interstate uh, conflict due to ineffective conflict management strategies, where we have um, uh, a, a, a surge of multi-ethnic societies. We, we like to argue that, that diversity is a good thing, but yet uh, diversity in, in many societies leads to conflict and spills over into the international community in general. Governments are unstable, and we haven't yet um, identified enough of the factors that contribute to the instability and how to address them in, a, in an effective, collective way in the international community. We've uh, developed a number of, um, of aid programs, um, but yet uh, they have uh, not addressed one of the key factors within and across societies, which is the in, in uh, the inequality in income, both within societies as well as across societies. And finally, as I've mentioned a number of times, climate change and uh, uh, climate change and its impact both on countries in general, but largely, I mean, you know, the well-known bumper sticker that, that, uh, um, that uh, climate, climate change is, is a downstream phenomena. You, you often pollute a river which flows into somebody else's territory. And so unless we, unless we um, begin to address these problems on a global basis, we will always have um, these issues. 
Now, how does this how does this relate to violence and terrorism? Well, a lot of these factors that I've just mentioned are uh, really um, uh, capable, under certain circumstances, of being the as I mentioned earlier, the preconditions to violence. And uh, sometimes that violence is restricted to within societies, but more often than not, it spills over into the international community, whether in the form of international conflict between two countries or uh, some form of terrorism that, that, um, that then impacts a larger community than just the community for which it was, uh, with which, in, in which it was born. So, so we're rapidly coming up on the hour mark, and I appreciate you sharing this amount of time with us. But I, I have a question I can't resist based on, uh, it seems like many of your uh, responses have been pretty negative about where the world's heading in terms of conflict and so on. I, I was just thinking about the recent book by Steven Pinker, the Lesser Angels book, and I, I suspect you're familiar with that book, where... He's taking this argument that everything looks pretty good, you know, that warfare is down, that conflict is down, that crime is down. Uh, would you take issue with with that sentiment? Well, it's not a sentiment; it's a it's a it's a fact, actually. If you count if you count the uh, if you count the number of um, if you look at fatalities, for example, worldwide, they are down. Uh, so you'd agree with that part of Pinker? I would agree with that part of Pinker's analysis. Would I? Disagree with is the is the is the issue of whether or not we are therefore can feel comfortable about where we've where we've landed. Um, the uh, you know just just months ago we were um, uh, anticipating the possibility of a uh, of a major war between the United States and North Korea, for example, which could have had it. Had it happened, inflicted millions of casualties, and all of a sudden our our data would show a you know a massive increase. So I'm not saying that we are uh, we are in danger of having another world war or even a nuclear holocaust of some sort, but uh, those kinds of phenomena are still are still there. In addition, what Pinkard really doesn't address is the um, the millions of deaths both now and coming resulting from climate change. Uh, we whole island nations will be inundated and so we may not call this conflict, but these are um, the, these are if we put those statistics and those projections in with the real I mean real but the, the those attributable to conflict and war, uh, we have the potential for calamity on a, on a global scale. So I don't like to end this in a sort of gloom and doom kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of uh, scenario. We have to be careful. We have, as is the case with climate change, we still have the means to address it. We do have the means to address poverty and inequality in other countries if we choose to, uh, to make that choice. But these are areas where um, we're neglecting Neglect, neglecting these areas is likely to come back to bite us or our children or grandchildren in an unpleasant way.
Terrorism 360 is a production of START, the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. Established in 2005 as a Department of Homeland Security Center for Excellence, START investigates the human causes and consequences of terrorism. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to learn more, visit us online at start.umd.edu. I had lots of help in putting this podcast together. I'd like to thank Jessica Ravinius, Alexa Kotman robinson Sam Koralnik, Bo Jiang, Michael Becker, Kasha Yasko, Rachel Gabriel, and J.D. Hansel.